Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Bill Janeway. Bill is an uh, longtime venture capitalist and economist, uh, author of the book, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, and the founder of Institute for New Economic Thinking, among many other things. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be with you, Eric. Bill, when, when you look uh, at your career, both uh, both back and uh, and going forward, what do you think is sort of the, uh, what threads it all together? If you had to sort of connect the various interests that you have, what do, what do you think is sort of the underlying thread there? Well, you know, the underlying thread is um, sometimes a little hard to trace, but it began with a really keen interest in what happens at the interface between markets and government, between these two sets of institutions, which each have evolved to allocate resources and distribute income and wealth, but with very different bases of legitimacy. You know, one person, one vote versus one dollar, one vote. So that's what got me going academically. It's why I went to the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. It's why I went to Cambridge to study in the shadow of John Maynard Keynes and uh, write a thesis for his leading student on the economic policies of the British government in the Depression, the failure of economic policy. The tangent that in about five years after I completed my doctorate, when I had already determined that I was not going to pursue the academic career I had anticipated because economics by the mid-70s had got itself, kind of talked itself into a modeling framework, a theoretical framework that assumed that markets were born to be efficient and required no outside help or support in delivering stable, efficient, and fair outcomes. I found I could not imagine polluting young brains with that nonsense. So I did not, I truly knew what I didn't want to do. By then, I'd already worked in Washington during the glory days of the, of the great society. Um, and I'd been there close enough to see the breakdown under the impact of the Vietnam War. I wasn't going to go back to Washington, and particularly not to Richard Nixon's Washington. But I joined a firm, an old-fashioned Wall Street firm, Whose, whose fundamental asset was deep knowledge, deep understanding of the dynamics of the science-based industries, the industries at the frontier, starting with chemicals, then pharmaceuticals, then electronics, and then just computing. And that's when I discovered computers. And through the next, well, 30 years, uh, what I call my, my, my 35-year sabbatical from the academy, I became deeply engaged with this transformational force, which took me back historically to look at previous technological revolutions and their political and economic consequences from the steam engine and the railroads through electrification. Uh, at the same time as I found myself at, at this frontier, and particularly in a very narrow way, and this is not entirely irrelevant to where we are today, there appeared to be a kind of, well, maybe at least once in a generation, if not once in a lifetime opportunity 
IBM owned commercial computing. It had done so from the 50s, but there was this new category of technology, and this is critical, all of it sponsored by the Defense Department. What spilled over in the 80s to become the PC revolution, but began to have the robustness necessary to challenge IBM's ownership. And I got, and my firm got deeply involved in that whole process. Um, and that's, that's when I discovered that I was a venture capitalist. I kind of came in, as I like to say, the back door, uh, through the back door as a cross between a garbage man and a policeman in getting engaged with emerging new companies that had gotten into trouble. But through that all was, was I say, was this clear recognition of how the Defense Department had built a platform on which entrepreneurs and venture capitalists could dance in the world of information technology. Well, in the world of biotechnology, it was the National Institutes of Health that had built that platform. So in each case, at the frontier, the innovation economy had been had, had the privilege of being brought to a degree of commercial readiness through that role of the government. And then I got to Warburg Pincus in the late 1980s, extraordinary firm, which had not been a terribly active player in IT, but this was when everything was beginning to mature. And there we had the, a, the um, how shall I put it, the unplanned for, uh, but nonetheless extraordinarily rewarding experience of being positioned to benefit from the great internet tech bubble of the late 1990s. And I have to say, one reason I went back to Cambridge when I retired as vice chairman at Warburg Pincus, my work on 1929 to 33 in 1999, uh, I'd seen that I'd seen that movie before, and I knew how it ended. Uh, in the book, there's a chart which shows the stock price of the iconic high tech company of the 1920s, Radio Corporation of America (RCA). And it's put again from 1926 to 1933. And I put it against the price charts of the two great tech companies, enterprise software companies that we helped build and backed at, at Warburg Pincus. And there from 1996 to 2003, and, and, and the charts are practically identical. But in any case, that's a long winded answer to what the threat is. But it was this, this understanding. That, that the action, for good or ill, takes place at this interface between the state and the market, and that there's this third force which can leverage, can mobilize capital for projects that are inherently very uncertain, where the returns, where you can't know what the returns are going to be, but this financial speculation, these bubbles can emerge and radically accelerate, as it did in the case of the digital revolution as it had in the case of electrification, as it had in the case of the railroads, enormously accelerate the impact of the technology in creating a new economy and new redistributions of income and wealth and political power along with it. Awesome. So we're going to get into some of these central points that, that you mentioned now and that you get into in your, your book at length. But, but first, I want to ask a couple of future, future-oriented questions before, before circling back. So first, you know, I'm curious as to sort of the questions and the focus of which you're wrestling now when you look at the next few years and what you're spending time now, what questions you're, you're really wrestling with or, or trying to, to prove or, or learn about. 
And then another way of asking a slightly related but different question is, you know, in the ne- in 50 years from now, when we're looking at your Wikipedia page, at, you know, most unique contributions, uh, wh- wh- what do you want to be there in terms of uh, the ideas that you helped, you know, bring to, to public thought? Is it is it really a nuanced understanding of the three-player game or is, is it something else? How would you answer those two questions? Okay, so the first question, um, what am I really focused on now? What do I think really is interesting? I mean, I, I, I guess I go from the, the relatively micro to the relatively macro. At the, at the relatively micro level, uh, I guess I'd say it's the, the durability of this unique phenomenon of institutional investors paying premium prices to buy securities that they can't sell with no governance rights in companies whose valuations and whose appetite for capital are both unprecedented. Private company, the unicorns. My own view is that the unicorn phenomenon is enormously dependent on a financial environment that we really haven't seen before, where nominal interest rates are at zero to negative levels, and particularly after taking account of the relatively modest, but nonetheless persistent inflation that we have. You know, um, the number of, of node is $17 trillion of debt securities uh, selling at negative interest rates. You have to pay the German government to take your money. In that environment, an Uber or WeWork can have access. They, they can build businesses that may or may not, may or may not have the underlying sustainability generated when you're paying your bills because your customers give you more money than it costs to deliver them a service, when you're paying your bills by selling securities. So I wonder in you know, the immediate future, I think we all are wondering, is the music stopping on this particular dance? Or will it only stop when nominal interest rates go back up? It seems there's a kind of tug of war going on as these unicorns get to the public market and their underlying long-term business models become subject to open and public scrutiny and two-way trading markets. So that's, that's one immediate question. Which, you know, as you know from the book, um, if I made a contribution at the practitioner level, it was to develop this notion of how to hedge against the inescapable uncertainty of investing at the technological frontier, what I call the twin hedge of cash and control, access unequivocally to enough cash when something bad happens to buy the time to find out what's going on, and enough control to change the terms of the problem, whether it's redirect you know, uh, uh, or, or sell the project or replace its leadership or what have you. So the unicorn phenomenon was, if you like, challenging because it directly said, no, you don't need to worry about cash and control. There's always going to be enough cash. Everybody has enough cash. And nobody has control except the founders, and you better love it. So that's that's one area. Uh, then sort of stepping out of that, I guess we come to what is known pretty broadly as um, the anxieties of democracy. Takes me back to my original where I started. This stress between the outcomes of a market economy, which for a long generation had been liberated, liberated in tone with, if you like, University of Chicago economics, free markets, rational expectations, 
minimize regulation, if not eliminate it completely, and generating in turn a, a return to levels of inequality uh, on the one hand and reduction in social mobility on the other and the isolation of large segments, not just in the United States, but across the developed industrial world, but doing this to people who also have access to the political process. That's this you know, dual coexistence of democracy and capitalism. And there, um, I'm at pains, I'm, I've been working hard to call people's attention to how problematic, fragile, and actually relatively recent that coexistence is, and how it came under extreme stress during the 1930s. It broke down in most of Europe. It was more threatened in the U.S. than we perhaps uh, remember in our sort of folk memory of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal coming in and, and happy, you know, happy days are here again. It was a very close-run thing in the U.S. There were millions of people on the move. There was Huey Long. There was racist, populist, extremist segments across the country. So that, in a sense, takes me back to where I originally began. Alongside it, and not unrelated, is this latest, this most interesting and unknowable extension of the digital revolution into machine learning, a.k.a the return of the artificial intelligence hype cycle. Now, I lived through the last one, which was all about expert systems. And I do tend to believe that anybody, anytime somebody comes to you and says, I've got this new super way to do AI or to use AI, as soon as you hear the term AI, you're being promoted. There is no question that the techniques that were have been developed around deep neural networks, learning networks, bring in some domain extremely capable, functional data analysis of a sort that we haven't had available before, particularly with respect to characterizing, identifying patterns in very large bodies of data, and also playing games that have a particular characteristic they're games where the rules are set exogenously, once and for all. The players can't change the rules. And by and large, the players all know where each other is. Although I must say, it's very impressive to see one of these systems uh, playing poker, apparently, quite effectively. But there's an awful lot that these systems can't do. But we're going to be exploring what they can do. And that means that exploration will involve yet another wave of automation disrupting labor markets at the time when we have had a generation of globalization disrupting labor markets so that this adds another force increasing the stress on this fragile coexistence that we call democratic capitalism. That, I think, is, is the big issue. It's what we're going to debate, be debating through the 2020 election. Uh, it is expressed in Britain with Brexit. It is expressed across Europe with the rise of the populist, the radical right populist parties. It is where we are. And that has to be a subject of intense focus analytically and 
actively, I think, for really for all of us. Now, you have a second question about looking back. In- well, including, what, including what you're going to achieve in the next you know, de- decades to come. Well, you know, I, I, I feel very strongly about, for myself, a mission that is to contribute to increasing the rate at which the disciplines of economics and finance evolve in response to their joint massive failure that was represented by the global financial crisis of 2008 and the Great Recession. I am an optimist about this. I'm close enough and engaged enough academically to see how the ground has been shifting, how this focus on empirical understanding of what has happened and how the world works, instead of saying the old joke, um, you know, this really works well in theory. I'm not sure how it works in practice, but the theory is beautiful. Turning that around is really important, but I think it is happening. This is the work I do with the Institute for New Economic Thinking. It's really the role I play with the Social Science Research Council, uh, on whose board I sit. Um, And as much of what I do in the lectures and talks that I give that leverage, if you like, the book, that attempt to, to bring doing capitalism into current discussion. But I, the extent to which I remain temperamentally an optimist is bolstered by the manner in which the global financial crisis is serving as an enormously productive gift to the academic disciplines, providing motivation for going back and re-examining the core assumptions, recognizing the complexity of the world and what's missed in not integrating between what happens in the financial markets, what happens in the real economy where people work and spend and save, and how those both interact with what's happening in the public sector. So there's one level at which Yes, what I call the three-player game between markets, financial speculation, and the state is uh, something I, I would like to be remembered for. But I'd also, frankly, I, I'd also like the, to be remembered for as one, not, not the, by any means the only one, but as someone who about halfway through where we are in the digital revolution, in other words, about 35 years ago, spotted the technological transformation, distributed computing, the delivery out to the periphery of data that could be acted on and that could be used to execute transactions to not just communicate, as having been one of those who who got that right and got it relatively early and for good or ill, contributed to the world we live in now that is the technological foundations of the world we live in now those are the two things and when you say ill is that sort of tongue-in-cheek or is that sort of genuine uncertainty over whether you know i think it's I, i think that every one of these technological revolutions has had positive consequences and negative consequences and it's open as to which will dominate i think that there is a great deal to worry about with the rise of the digital giants. I think the tech lash, as it's called, was to be expected. It's not unlike the populist rebellion at the end of the 19th century against the railroads and the big banks. 
the populist revolution that was led by a man who ran for president three times without actually getting there, William Jennings Bryan. He's the fellow of the Thou shalt not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold, the use of the gold standard to enforce depression on the working classes. I think that we're just beginning to come to grips with recognizing that the economic consequences of the digital revolution cannot be left to themselves to sort out. So, for example, Again, this is the kind of positive phenomenon I note. Clearly a discussion of reinventing antitrust theory and policy for the digital age. That's begun. That's on the agenda. No matter who wins the 2020 election, it may be delayed if the incumbent remains in office. But it, it, we will, we're not going to escape from that debate from the right or the left. Now, there is something I, I, I really must add. But we're talking about what am I thinking about now? There's a bridge here that I'm just going to assert. Even given the open-ended prospects for machine learning, this third wave of AI, the digital revolution has really matured. It's matured very far. It was radically accelerated by the tech bubble and boom of the late 90s. But it's, it's, it's so mature that just like electricity, after World War II, you know, it's kind of begun to disappear. When it breaks down, you know it's broken down, just like when a fuse blows, you know the fuse is blown. But you can, by and large, just plug it in and it works, whether it's your phone or your computer or what have you. But there's another revolution. There's another technical, technological revolution or a revolution that is going to require further profound technological innovation. And that, of course, is the response to climate change. And I think you can look at that in several, along several different dimensions, all of which are really important. One of them is this. If the U.S. Defense Department had never been created, as it was in 1947, if Stalin had died in his bed in 1945, if there had never been a Korean War, if there had never been a Cold War, digitalization of calculation and communication would have occurred. It would have been an evolution. It wouldn't have been as disruptive. It certainly would have been, would not have been as rewarding for the entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. It would have happened. The problem with climate change is it won't wait. We certainly have seen some radical technologically relevant responses. The incredible decline in the cost of solar panels, for example. One where ironically it was the, it was the German government that provided the demand driver that brought the Chinese industry down the learning curve to be the low-cost provider to the world. But there are still technological barriers, even if there were the political will, even if response to climate change were broadly accepted as legitimizing pretty radical state interventions in the market economy. We do not have grid-level storage capable of handling a system in which a preponderance, let alone all of energy, is delivered from intermittent sources. That's exactly the sort of problem that the kind of DARPA-style, NIH-style state investments in upstream research, but also state 
procurement for technologies that are not ready for commercial time, prime time, that are not reliable enough, not cheap enough, but where the, the, the purchaser who doesn't care about economic cost has a legitimate mission, can reenact and play the role of pulling the private sector into being able to deliver technology at scale that we desperately need if we're going to limit the potentially utterly devastating consequences of climate change. You know, there are some, if you pardon the expression, some green shoots. Clearly, there is a shift taking place in American public opinion. The U.S., along with Australia, has been at a very different scale, the outriders of, of, of governments actively denying, working, doing their best to prevent positive response, even by the private sector. I mean, I have to say, I've been around for quite a while, and I've been a student of political economy now for, I guess, 60 years. The idea of a national administration invoking antitrust in order to attack private companies that are prepared to collaborate at the state level in delivering a public good, which the federal government says it doesn't care about. In other words, the automobile companies agreeing to follow the California higher emission control requirements and fuel uh, economy requirement, that that is a conspiracy and restraint of trade. You know, as they say, reality outstrips the imagination. There are things that you just can't make up. Nobody could have made that up. We, we've laid sort of the groundwork to go deeper in some of these really exciting topics, the, the unicorn phenom, democratic capitalism, unifying economic theory and, and practice, uh, the tech lash, climate change. Let's spend a few minutes going over some of the central points from your, from your book, because they will, uh, they will help give a backdrop as, as we go deeper in some of, these, some of these problems we outlined. So maybe you could start by explaining the, the three-player game a little bit, you know, the relationship between you know, markets, uh, the state, and, and uh, financial speculation, and, and maybe you know, talk to what people misunderstand or underappreciate about it. And, and a couple of points you know, I, I, I take from the book are, hey, people really underrate the role of, of government investment in, uh, in, in markets and in technology and in entrepreneurship. And that also people not only underrate, but misunderstand the effect of, of bubbles, uh, financial bubbles in, uh, in, in growth and, and technology as well. Okay. So I think the place to begin is by recognizing that at the frontier, progress is achieved by trial and error and error and error. It is not an efficient process. It depends on funding from sources of capital that are not concerned exclusively with visible economic value. This is not the routine incremental improvement of what already exists. It is what Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction. Now, we can observe historically how as we broke out of the Malthusian trap where every increase in Food productivity was met by an increase in population going back, you know, from the fall of the Roman Empire till the mid 18th century. We can observe since then key moments when state intervention, sometimes indirect in the form of, for example, tariffs, sometimes 
pretty direct in the form, for example, of the land grants that subsidize the construction of railways in the United States, or the guarantee given to the promoters of the Erie Canal by Governor DeWitt Clinton of the state of New York, which is why the Erie Canal, as it was being built, was called Clinton's Folly. That was DeWitt Clinton, not Bill Clinton. And then, of course, it was the most incredibly productive investment, which made New York the dominant commercial city of the United States by the 1850s. And then you can roll forward and see how, in a more distributed way, more at the level of state government, the provision of monopoly rights for the producers, for the utility companies in water and above all electricity created the economic basis for profitable investment that could not have taken place if there hadn't been that state intervention. So that, that's one side. As we come forward, and particularly, of course, in the era after World War II, that role of the state in funding upstream research, not just in the, what became the digital technologies, but also in healthcare life sciences, obviously played a critical role as as we've said, as did the role as the, of the state, of the government, as this early collaborative, supportive customer for the products that were not yet reliable or cheap enough for commercial use. But then you also have this sort of parallel, this parallel history of financial speculation. Now, there are several really great works that document historically the persistent recurrence of crazy, manic waves of speculation that drive the prices of financial assets to levels that are unrelated to any calculation of cash flows, past, present, or prospective. Bubbles, in other words, I like to say, are banal. They are boringly common. But, and this is what's key, they are not all the same. And the way I learned to factor them was to look at two aspects, two dimensions. What is the focus of the bubble and what is the locus, the place where the bubble's taking place in the financial system? The focus, well, most of the time, this, the assets that are being bid up to ludicrous, unsustainable prices are assets which have no potential for changing the productivity parameters, the consumption possibilities of the economy. They're tulip bulbs. They're real estate. Again and again, real estate. You might say, well, I know this is a little controversial. They're bitcoins. But occasionally, occasionally, they're canals, they're railroads, they're electricity networks. They are the internet and the uses, the, the, the applications thereof. That means when the bubble bursts, and it inevitably will burst, you're left with railroad tracks that aren't torn up, electricity grids that aren't scrapped, dark fiber that's available for Netflix 10 years later when the applications grow to take advantage of that infrastructure that was built very unprofitably ahead of its time, funded by speculation. So if, and this is the next, the key step, this is the, the locus question. If the bubble, if the financial speculation, as it was in the late 1990s, is limited to the public stock market, 
and the junk bond market, where there's relatively little leverage, in other words, where the financial positions are not funded by borrowed money, they're real cash. Then when the bubble bursts, the financial crisis, the economic pain is much less. Whereas in 2004, 2007, you have this exact contrast. Then the focus is specul- is real estate. It's, it's, you know, we're going to build beach houses in the Nevada desert, an endless supply. And it's entirely funded by super high leverage debt. Of course, the digital revolution played a critical role. You couldn't have constructed those derivative securities, those layers of, of uh, securitized vehicles, special purpose vehicles, without computers. I mean, you, you couldn't even have remotely constructed them. But when they burst, not only did it bring down the entire global economy, it left behind nothing of value. So that's where I think taking bubbles seriously recognizing that occasionally that financial speculation can be productive because it mobilizes capital at the scale to reach critical mass in the deployment of new technologies and in the exploration of what they're good for. Most of the time, they should be strangled at birth when they slip over into the credit system. That's where the damage gets done. And that's where I, let me put it this way. I think some of the new economic thinking taking place is beginning to recognize that this intersection, this, this aspect of the three-player game, where financial excess, excess spills over into the real economy, is a subject of absolutely profound importance. And integrating finance and, and economics, that's, that's one of the things that cheers me up. There's a lot of work going on there, which will inform public policy down the road. So the three-player game, as I say, progress by trial and error, dependence on sources of funding that are prepared to, if you like, uh, well, let's say, are not interested in the efficient allocation of resources in the very short term. They have different missions. On the one hand, the state has a political legitimate mission, whether it's win the Cold War or, let us hope, respond to climate change or national development, as with railroads and electrification. Uh, And then the financial speculators who are always going to be jumping on some opportunity. But if they're constrained not to pollute the banking system, they can deliver capital at scale that rational, thoughtful MBAs would never dream of doing. Say more about uh, how we tell the difference between productive and, and non-productive bubbles in the moment, and, and can we always can we always tell in advance or as it's happening? No, no, we can't. We can't, and that's where I say looking at where the speculation is taking place really matters. That is why the post two thousand and eight re-regulation of the banking system is really important, and the efforts to undo that are really dangerous, requiring. On the one hand, requiring banks to hold much more capital, much more real equity, cash equity capital is so important. Reducing their profitability on purpose. It's why policing the shadow banking sectors, the spillover into pseudo unregulated institutional venues is so important. 
that's where the destructive, the destruction of speculation can be constrained while letting exploration of whether these assets that we're funding actually can deliver economic value over time. I wouldn't bar SoftBank from investing in WeWork, not for a minute. I'd be very concerned about those banks saying they're going to lend uh, WeWork $6 billion while it's losing $2 billion last half year. That is worthy of regulatory scrutiny because you're bringing in credit institutions whose liabilities are guaranteed by the taxpayer to fund open-ended speculation. That's the difference I would draw and where I would draw the line for the regulatory oversight. Let's talk about some of the biggest implications of a full understanding of the, of the three-player game or a full understanding of your book. You know, if everyone understood it, agreed with it, appreciated it, even in the U.S., what would be some of the biggest uh, changes that, w- that would emerge just because of it, policy changes perhaps broader, particularly the ones that are different from where mainstream consensus or where policy is, is right now? Well, I, you know, I think that some of this isn't terribly re- radical or revolutionary. I think it would, it would say that, well, what are we, wait a second, DARPA is still getting $3 billion a year of funding uh, where its scope of action has been rather seriously limited to more directly military applications. And ARPA-E, the Department of Energy's sort of little uh, uh, model of, of DARPA, first of all, has been zeroed out in every budget of the Trump administration since 2017. And Congress has, has resisted that, but is funding it at $300 million, not $3 billion. Now, that seems to me absolutely ludicrous. I would then say that understanding how state support, not just for the development, the research into the new technologies, but for accelerating the deployment of those technologies, the greening of the infrastructure, not only can directly provide benefits, but can become the frame for mobilizing private capital, yes, in a somewhat speculative mode, but private capital, we have an enormous amount of work to do if we're going to radically reduce the energy intensity of production and consumption in this country, particularly since we've had a generation of very a broad generalized neglect of the infrastructure itself. Well, any one of these things you can turn into a positive. My friend Carlotta Perez in London likes to speak of the, the green growth revolution, that investing in, for example, the kinds of transportation systems that will be much more efficient in, in um, their, use of, of, uh, their use of energy and their production of carbon creates enormous growth opportunity for the economy and for public-private, for private interests to profit and benefit from them as well. You can think of anything like the deployment of, and a a much more accelerated pace, of charging stations for electric vehicles. You can think of, on the other side, uh, I've just been having a conversation about how the private sector has not been building out in the less populated, less dense less profitable segments of the country, 
high, really high-speed internet. Well, you know, we have a model for this. One of the signal programs of the New Deal was called the Rural Electrification Administration, because then the electric utilities didn't build their networks out to support the rural economy, and the people were isolated and excluded. Um, a rural electrification, a, a rural internet administration would be a natural and fit exactly within this frame of the three-player game. There are all sorts, but it does begin. It begins with one fundamental recognition that Ronald Reagan was wrong. Government may not be the solution for every problem, but it's not the problem that blocks all solutions. There's a long history of productive partnership. And when that partnership is seen to be productive, it then sets the stage for the, if you like, the healthy animal spirits of financial speculators amplifying the economic benefit by putting up capital that otherwise would not be prepared to play the game. Let's let's get into that partnership a little bit, because my understanding that uh, VCs are perhaps, or Andreessen has talked about maybe being skeptical uh, a little bit of, of how governments can lead to innovation today. And I guess a few questions for you. One is, was something about DARPA sort of uniquely possible in a world where existential threat of the Cold War uh, exists? And then two, could you describe the sort of what I understand to be the Andreessen skeptical position and then maybe how you'd uh, respond to it? Well, first of all, the existential threat of climate change seems to me to be up there and not dwarfed by the existential threat that the Soviet Union played back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Second, what was distinctive about DARPA was that its manner of operation contradicted what most people came to feel or fear. And I think what my friends, Mark and Dreesen and I talk about this quite often. DARPA saw itself, so one of its roles as protecting the new emergent companies, the intels, from the or weaning power of the big, ugly incumbents, IBM and AT&T. DARPA became a source of support for innovation, if you like, from the ground. And, and, and it very much resisted the notion of national champions, that all of its funding should be channeled through IBM and AT&T and let the uh, young upstarts starve in the wilderness. There's no reason why that model can't be reinvented. In fact, if you go back to the previous generation, this all grew out of World War II, where the great Vannevar Bush, who ran the Office of Scientific Research and Development, made a fundamental decision that the president, Roosevelt, backed him on. Instead of putting the federal investment in science into federal labs, only with the atomic bomb for secrecy was it put into a federal lab. It was run through the universities. The government, in fact, in the course of the World War II, effectively invented the research university in the United States. We were two generations behind Germany in the development of universities as centers of research excellence of probing the, the frontier of science. So today, we have that infrastructure in place. We do have the great research universities of the world. There are only a few, one of which I'm I will assert, 
Maine's Cambridge University, uh, where I am affiliated. But we don't have the, and this is what's key, the legitimizing, broadly accepted political mission that will empower this kind of public-private partnership. It is always, as I if I, I have great respect for the work of my friend Mariana Mazzucato, but it is the case that wherever there is state intervention in the economy, wherever you see this permeable membrane, this frontier between the markets and the political system where, where it approaches, there's always room and incentive for rent-seeking rent and, 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 and corruption across that membrane. So policing that is absolutely critical. And even in World War II, even in the Cold War, there were examples in the U.S., fortunately, not of a crippling scale, unlike some other countries that are fairly obvious. It will always be a concomitant of supporting this state-driven innovation in support of private sector for-profit exploitation of what the state can deliver and which only the state can deliver. It will always be necessary to police that corruption that runs both ways, those in the state seeking gain in the private sector and vice versa. Yeah. There is sort of the, um, this question of, Hey, do you solve market failures via state state mechanism as we've just been discussing, or do you need to somehow and or um, for certain examples, do you need to design better better markets? And in, in, in the crypto community, I mean, and in other communities, the pe- uh, people are trying to design better sort of decentralized networks that better internalize some of the externalities by incorporating the commons. Or or people are trying to sort of have more market based experiments. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the work of Glenn Weil and radical markets. Yeah, I know Glenn's work very very well, and and I agree with him about much of what he writes. I also know. Uh, some of the really closest students of what has been happening and not happening in the crypto world. I'll cite, for example, Hyun Shin, who's chief economist at the Bank for International Settlement, who points out that in any network of payments, which, of course, in the conventional world today are all done digitally, payment flows do not come in symmetrically balanced in time. There is always need for a liquidity provider to keep the system afloat, to keep it functioning. That liquidity provider, sooner or later, step by step, has to get back to someone who actually can, has the authority to generate liquidity from scratch. That's called a central bank. It is the case as well, and very well-earned Nobel Prizes in economics have been won for this, all contracts are inevitably incomplete. No contract, in principle, can provide for all possible, including, of course, the contingencies that nobody has ever thought of might become contingencies. Consequently, we should be very careful about putting in motion if you like, uh, contractual doomsday machines, like the doomsday machine in Dr. Strangelove, that can't be stopped when it gets triggered. You want there to be timeouts 
just like you have circuit breakers in the financial markets, in the digitalized financial markets. You want there to be regulatorily enforced timeouts so human beings can look at each other and say, hey, wait a second, is this really what we meant? Is this what we wanted to have happen? Maybe we should renegotiate a little bit. So I, I, I fully expect the continued digitalization of contractual relationships of transactional relationships. I do think, however, that whether it's the original Bitcoin protocol or those that follow, there's an awful lot of reinventing of wheels that really work pretty well in the attempt to construct systems that inevitably are going to need the same kind of backstops. There's a great book by a fellow in Columbia called Bernard Harcourt called The Illusion of Free Markets, which looks at, he, he does this very cleverly. He looks at the, the grain market, the Parisian grain market of the 18th century, which was actually the subject of study by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, and the Chicago Board of Trade, the, and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the commodity markets in the Midwest that became the, the model for the University of Chicago. And in each of them, what he identifies and documents is an underlying structure of regulation enforceable at law, necessary for those markets to be able to function, for free trade to be able to take place, given that regulatory infrastructure accepted by all players in the game. When you don't have that, what you have is what emerged in, 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 the, in the former Soviet Union in the early 1990s, gangster capitalism, capitalism at the, at, the, at, at, at the point of a gun or the kind of whatever you want to call it, um, gangster feudalism at the end of when the Roman Empire collapsed in the 6th century, 6th and 7th century. So be careful what you wish for, you free marketeers. You'll find that again and again, we have been at pains to reinvent the structures that enable the free trade in goods, in services, in labor, and in capital. Well, a natural question to ask when you think about sort of the relationship between you know markets and, and governments is, what do you think about sort of the market for governance, i.e., should there be startup cities, charter cities? Should we be celebrating that, encouraging that? And, and how do you envision that, that playing out? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware Paul Romer, who Nobel Prize winner endogenous growth theory, uh, very creative. Uh, has, has, I, I, I myself, I guess I'm too much of a historian to believe that you sort of um, create a culture by design from scratch. I think we have these highly distinctive, different cultures that have evolved. As I say, you know, it took generations. New York has always had a particular aspect of its culture, which was exemplified when the uh, the Dutch uh, stockholders in the company, the for-profit company that created New Netherlands in uh, the 17th century, fired their governor, Peter Stuyvesant because he refused to allow refugee Jews into the city. And effectively, they said, we don't care whether they're Christians or Jews, as long as their money is green, 
they're good to go. They're welcome in our city. And you have other cities where obviously that culture was the opposite of that, where they were closed form. We certainly can see that there is something to be said for that kind of open openness. Um, I sometimes like to say that if any any country wants a single, has only one, only one possible regulatory change to promote innovation and growth, what would it be? And the answer is open immigration. People would get up and go, get up and go. And of course, the United States was the enormous beneficiary of that phenomenon through the 19th century into the early days of the 20th and then stopped for 40 years. I think that we can observe, and there's been some, some interesting work. There's, of course, a great deal of attention paid. Where did Silicon Valley come from? Why was Route 128 the previous source of innovation in the digital technologies? I'm very happy to say that I, I, I think the uh, first real academically robust history of venture capital in the U.S. by Tom Nichols of Harvard Business School, it's called D.C., does a good job of explaining that. And again, it was a, a multidimensional collaboration. Obviously, the fact that the Defense Department ran so much of its technological research through Harvard and MIT, and then around them, companies like Raytheon and digital equipment emerged from those universities as contractors with the government or just second-stage beneficiaries of that kind of work. And similarly in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley began in this intersection when, on the one hand, uh, the the United States Navy had a major research establishment. There were technology companies there, but Stanford was, Dean Terman, the dean of engineering at Stanford, was so angry that Stanford got almost no government research funding when the East Coast universities and even Berkeley had gotten more and created this uh, environment for innovation in the early years after, after World War II in the first research part. So I think, you, I think there's an organic aspect of this. There's some work done on biotechnology clusters, uh, particularly these uh, great economic sociologist at Stanford, uh, Woody Powell, Walter W. Powell, who's worked on this. Why did it turn out that Boston and the San Francisco Bay Area and San Diego would be the core of the biotechnology revolution, not northern New Jersey, where the big drug companies are, for example, not Bethesda, Maryland, around the National Institutes for Health of Health. So there's a lot of contingency but clearly, the existence of major research universities, the benefit of the uh, Bayh-Dole Act, which allowed those universities to capture returns on research funded by the government, that was a big step, and therefore allowed academics to live a kind of dual life, to cross that, that uh, frontier into entrepreneurial activity. That's all played a played a big role. And then the evolution of an American venture capital industry centered in these in these geographical sectors and close to them. I should say that um, Nichols' book is all the more enjoyable to read because he begins with a kind of 
historical model, a prefiguring of modern venture capital, which is the agents who funded the American whaling industry in the decades before the Civil War, who had to mobilize capital for these super high-risk projects. And, and, and there was the same kind of pattern, a great skew in the returns, but some persistence. There were some who were better than others and persistently successful in picking the best skippers and the best crew. I'm curious how you think about, or you have a framework for thinking about sort of the ideal you know, balance between decentralization and centralization. You know, the, the Bitcoin community, of course, is trying to sort of decentralize money, separate you know, money and state. The charter city community is trying to you know, decentralize sort of power of, of governance so that people have, have more options. You know, another faction of the crypto community the you know uh, Chris Dixon is sort of leading this pack intellectually is trying to uh, decentralize the internet from from the the central powers that that be there. Uh, how do you think about the balance between decentralization and centralization? That leads me to my next question, which is, you know, climate change. There are other sort of glo- problems that require global coordination. How do we think about global governance or, or ways to incentivize global cooperation? Okay, two two very very different questions. It seems to me. First of all. You know, those who are so keen on decentralization today should spend a little time thinking about what happened when we did render the state illegitimate as an economic actor. When in the 28 years from Reagan's first inaugural to the global financial crisis, we allowed decentralized markets to run on their own, by and large, across broad swath of economic and financial life. It didn't end very prettily. There is a need and a reason. There's a reason why market participants persistently reinvent the state when they realize what they themselves cannot, not they don't want to, but that they cannot be responsible for. Above all, that means the lender of last resort, the ultimate liquidity provider when markets blow up. I have no, I have seen nothing that suggests that any crypto, digital, decentralized money system is not going to require a lender of last resort. And that means a state. So that's one big piece. Second, global governance. Well, we're certainly not going to have global governance as um, uh, you know, one parliament to rule them all. We have had, however, we have had, not through the hegemonic authority of the United States in the post-war world, but through collaboration amongst a multitude of independent states, of self-governing states, we have had instances, existence proofs, that collaboration in the public good can actually work. I give you the response to the ozone hole a generation ago. Both Democratic and Republican administrations in this country collaborated across a broad range of regimes across the developed world and into the early emerging world to reach agreement, uh, agreement that has held and that worked. So I don't think we should imagine that it's a pipe dream. Okay, having said that, Danny Roderick at the Kennedy School wrote a little book not it, which it's interesting. It's almost ten years since he wrote it. It's called the um, globalization paradox. It was not picked up when he wrote it, but it's become 
in the, in, in the aftermath of Trump and Brexit, under the shadow of Trump and Brexit, I now see it being cited everywhere. What Roderick proposes is the following trilemma. You can have national autonomy, representative government, and deep economic and financial integration. Two out of three. Two out of three. You can't have them all. And the deep economic and financial integration, which we engineered, it didn't happen by accident. It happened through the World Trade Organization. It happened through the opening up of international capital flows, uh, the elimination of capital controls, which was relatively very late, only in the 1980s. We have deep economic and financial integration just beginning to pull back from it, which the current administration in the United States seems determined to take further. Because if you don't, either you're going to be unable to restrict, to respond to your local constituents' needs, or if you want to do that, you have to put up barriers, or you have to, a la members of the European Union, join together and surrender important aspects of independent national autonomy. It is a trilemma. I think we are most likely to see a retreat from what you might call the hyper-globalization, particularly with respect to capital flows. And to some extent, we, we clearly are seeing, uh, of course, a radical retreat in the face of the flows of labor, the flows of people, just as we did in the 1920s in the United States, when we basically ended immigration for 40 years. I began by talking a little bit about the fragile coexistence of capitalist markets and representative open political processes. This is right where the rubber hits the road. And if anything of those to go, I think we're, we may see Britain is clearly struggling with this right now. In pursuit of national autonomy, they seem to be, you know, as it were, at the brink of, of, of deciding to give up something on representative democracy in order to uh, assert uh, a, a, a supposed will of the people. This is, very, this is very remarkable in the British political tradition. Very remarkable. So I think that th- this stress is definitely going to continue. And I don't think there's any simple answer to it. But I think that there can be, and this is, of course, why it is so, so frustrating that in this country, above all, to have the national leadership occupied by people who are deniers of climate change, because that is the forcing function for global collaboration, not global governance, but global cooperation and collaboration. Any more thoughts on which two of the three of the trilemma, if we accept the trilemma, should we we optimize for, or how should we better think about the trade-offs between them or between it's a tough question. It's a tough question. You know, it sort of it becomes almost tempting to say, well, maybe democracy went too far. <laughs> but, you know, I, of course, it's Churchill's famous remark that democracy is the worst system of government except for all the others. Every other one. I mean, well, let me, let me back up and put it a slightly different way. We actually are now confronted, we in the West, we in the world of the OECD, are confronted with a clear alternative. China. Exactly. That what what China what what the China experiment 
conclusively demonstrates market capitalism, as it has opened up in China in the last generation, always requires a political counterweight. In China's case, it's the authoritarian, not so benevolent surveillance state. Highly decentralized, by the way. It's not recognized in the West how much authority, how much financial resources are in the hands of provincial and local government. Enormous amount. Yes, subject to, on the one hand, oversight from Beijing, also subject to more or less arbitrary intervention in, for example, uh, the anti-corruption campaign, which seems to have played a very positive role with respect to the productivity of local funding, of research and development, uh, as recent paper from the Harvard Business School suggests. But of course, any such system always raises the question, which is now just about 2,000 years old. It was the Roman writer Marshall who wrote, um, Quis custodes ipsos custodiet, who shall guard the guardians themselves? And that, of course, is a presenting question in China, as it has been in every other authoritarian system. Uh, it's not necessarily the most attractive, but you can see its appeal in the context of a breakdown in our democratic governance in the face of the stresses of extreme inequality and the, if you like, excessive globalization of markets. Yeah. I mean, a couple of follow-ups to that. I, I think, you know, we still see, you know, or mainstream culture still sees China as, as communist. I, I, I think of what, like, why do they still see it as such? Is, is that a false, false reading? And another couple follow-up questions that uh, Bill Gurley said, you know, uh, capitalism, democracy are sort of inherently unsustainable or incompatible. Do, do you disagree with that? And then lastly, was it sort of an accident that, um, or coincidence that that capitalism rose with with democracy, or, or or were they tied together in some way we don't appreciate? Well, you know, as I say, what Bill Gurley takes to an extreme, what I say is uh, common sense that there is stress between two systems of distributing power that are not congruent. Well, first of all, let's be clear: capitalism comes long before, long before democracy. Capitalism can clearly elements of it have been tracked back to the Roman Empire. The the um, Cambridge history of capitalism begins more than 2,000 years ago. Certainly during the Middle Ages, the great French historian, Fernand Brodel, who was an inspiration to me when I read his work on capitalism and civilization, identifies the dynamics of capitalism through the late Middle Ages into the Renaissance, long before the Industrial Revolution, when technology embedded and embodied by physical assets, was far too fragile to be a target for profits, high profit, exceptional profit-seeking capitalists. It was long-distance trade. If um, you're acquainted with The Merchant of Venice, great Shakespeare play, the merchant is actually named Antonio, and he is a venture capitalist. He funds six projects. And he, he, he went to, he took Finance 101. He diversified. They're each going to different ports. Unfortunately, as can happen with venture capitalists, 
the law of small numbers uh, works against him. He doesn't diversify enough. All of the ships go down. And he has this really challenging limited partner named Shylock. I'm not sure if Shylock is a more challenging limited partner than MBS in Saudi Arabia, who <laughs> seems to have a way of dealing with uh, those who disappoint him. So my point here is that we can discern the elements of capitalism, which Brodel, Brodel has a wonderful phrase, which I, I quote in the book about for the capitalist it's as, as if sitting at a high, on a high seat, overlooking a world in which opportunities open up and you never know where they're going, where the next one is going to be. But you move from one to another. It, it describes the perspective of the venture capitalist looking for the discontinuity, which will generate the extraordinary profit, not the routine, grind it out, just keep delivering, just keep doing what you're good at doing and hope that somebody come, doesn't come along and disrupt you. But it deliberately looking for that disjuncture where super profits, at least for a time, become available. And as I say, he documents that all through from the from the 12th to the 16th century. The democracy emerges only with the escape from the Malthusian trap, the increase in productivity that creates classes of merchants and new industrialists who have been excluded from the political process, where power has been limited to the hereditary elites. And so you have this history that begins in Britain, little foreshadowing in the 17th century with the English Civil War, but really begins in the years after the Napoleonic War, when, the, when they end. When I give talks in China, I like to um, provide a story which the audience can decide how relevant it may be or may not be in saying that in 1820, Britain is governed by a highly corrupt oligarch, uh, elite of oligarchs, who are exercising national authority in close collaboration with a church that reaches out to every village in the country, where there are local alliances with the local farmer, rich farmers, strong men. They're legitimized, their authority is justified by how recent was the experience of the breakdown of social order in Paris in 1792-93, the terror of the French Revolution. And they're trying to hold the lid on the greatest explosion of economic energy and financial wealth in human history. Then over the next two generations, through compromise after compromise, first the franchise mm -hmm. isn't extended so much as it's regularized, it's rationalized in the Great Reform Act. Then the protection of the aristocrats' land holdings is eliminated with the repeal of the Corn Laws. Then corruption is addressed with the reform of the civil service. And eventually, the franchise access to the voting box is progressively extended in a series of legislation that continued right through the First World War. So this long evolution of a democratic counterweight to the dynamic engine of market, of, of market capitalism evolved over time in the West. The U.S., it was accelerated. You didn't have the great landowners. You didn't have the aristocracy. 
You had the Jacksonian populist revolution against the financial elites on the East Coast. The Bank of the United States was eliminated and white men got the vote by the 1830s, the earliest universal male white suffrage in the world. It took another 100 years for the rest of the population to have any hope of catching up. Another 100 and almost, well, I guess we could say through till the 18, the 1960s with the Voting Reform Act still under attack in the field. Um, so democracy has emerged, but it's emerged very haphazardly and almost accidentally from time to time in response to uh, the threat that the dynamics of market capitalism will prove so disruptive that the alternative to opening up the political process is overthrow of the political process. In, in the last 50 plus years, we, we've seen sort of, uh, in, in on, onwards, we've seen a significant increase in the percentage of the economy that, that has gone to government spend. But, and also we've seen an increase in sort of, you know, in the financialization of our economy, how would you characterize that, that that increase and or that evolution? And how would what do you think is sort of the ideal size and scope of government spend and, and of the you know financial sector involvement? Again, Eric, those are two very very different questions. And the first one I'd actually dispute. We had the, the big expansion of the public sector in the U.S. Remember, it comes in two forms. It comes in actual government purchases of goods and services on the one hand, and on the other hand through transfer payments, redistribution payments like Medicare and Social Security. The, the expansion of the U.S. public sector as a whole since it has really been minimal. In fact, in some respects, it's clearly been less since the 1970s, over the last 40 years. And in 2007, the federal government accounted for about 20%, including the transfer payments, and the state and local government for about 15%. Now, that was way up from what it had been in 1929, when the total public sector was 7%, and the federal government was only 2%. This time around, this is very important to remember and to recognize, this time around, even in the U.S., whose public sector was the smallest of the major developed countries, even in the U.S., it was big enough to help cushion the blow to economic flows, economic activity of the global financial crisis. The central bank, the Federal Reserve, gets most of the credit, if not all the credit, for preventing the global financial crisis from becoming a great depression, limiting it only to a great recession. But the factor that is not taken as seriously as it should be is the relative scale of the public sector, that where the social security checks continued to be paid even when the banks froze and there was no lending, no lending, zero lending. So the U.S. today is clearly has a constrained, not very efficient. And we do have a health sector, which is by far the largest as a share of the national economy of any country in the world at 20 percent. Uh, no single payer system is more than 12%. Their outcomes, okay, some of them with more homogeneous populations, are at least as good and often better than our outcomes from a, a system which you might argue has clearly there are some very vocal public voices arguing that it's 
it would be a smaller share of the total economy if it had a larger public share versus the layers of profit-seeking elements in the healthcare system. So that first question about the scale of government engagement in the total economy, I, I don't accept that it has grown over the last generation. There was this brief blip. But remember, even the Obama stimulus bill was about half tax cuts, only half increased spending. I think you can make a case that the green economy will need a larger share of public investment than we have had over the last generation. Point one, financialization, very, very different. There, it is unquestionably the case. Uh, and I can even give you some numbers. I carry these around in my head. I, I can't get rid of them. If you take the total value of financial assets relative to GDP, which you might say is a kind of proxy for the cash flows that underlie, that validate those financial assets, that make the money good, 1950, that ratio was 1.3. In other words, the value of financial assets was 1.3 times the then gross national product of the, of, of the country, the GDP. By 1980, 30 years later, it had grown from 1.3 to 1.8 times. Now, that's a, a annual rate, a compound annual rate of growth that you wouldn't even see on a chart. It's so low. Between 1980 and 2007, the onset of the global financial crisis, it goes from 1.8 to 4.8 times. 4.8 times. This is what's enabled by the application of digital technologies to the financial world. It begins with the securitization of mortgages and then the securitization of all assets so that they can become tradable, so that derivatives can be written against them, another layer of financialization, but bringing with it the inherent volatility that occurs in markets where financial instruments are traded. This is what blew up in 2008, of course. I think it's undoubtedly, to, to me, it's undoubtedly the case that financialization has gone too far. And that one defense against it, as I said earlier, is increased capital requirements on the participants, the key market makers, the key players in the financial system to make it more robust, to have larger reserves against that volatility. There's another aspect of this, which is perhaps a little more controversial, but I'll put it in historical terms. We had a kind of minor, minor league, maybe double A baseball financial crisis in the United States in George H.W. Bush's administration. It was called the SNL crisis, the savings and loan crisis. The savings and loans had been liberated from regulation, allowed to compete for deposits by offering higher interest rates. But to pay those higher interest rates, they had to take on riskier and riskier assets. It blew up. The SNLs melted down. In that instance, which occurred, as I say, under a Republican administration, order of magnitude 200 bankers went to jail. Went to jail. This time around, a far greater, far greater financial crisis with far deeper and more painful economic consequences. How many bankers went to jail? How many bankers were even indicted? You know, I think that plays into the stresses we now feel 
and that have been expressed in the 2016 presidential election and in Britain in the Brexit phenomenon, this rejection of elites. They only protect themselves and each other. We lose our houses. They get their bonuses. So it has a deep political overhang, financialization does. One thing I, I, you know, I hear and, and definitely believe is that there's sort of a crisis of legitimacy and that people question sort of, you know, the role of, go- of government, the role of financial speculation, even, even the role of, uh, of, of markets. And I, I wonder if there's a way to sort of decouple uh, you know, the, the legitimacy of the institution in the first place and then sort of the scale and scope. And if it's fair for people or for some people to, uh, you know, believe in the legitimacy, just say, hey, you know, financialization should have a you know, significant less impact on the economy or, hey, you know, government should have, a, you know, less impact uh, or markets should have less of an impact. Or do you think that, that we should couple more of those because it's it's very important to have an equal check, check sort of, or close to as equal checks and balances between the three? How would you respond to that? It's a good question. I, I, first of all, I think institutions earn legitimacy just as people do, as people earn trust by their actions, by their behavior. The manner in which for a broad, by no means, all of the politically active populace in the United States, uh, the New Deal earned its legitimacy step by step, and in some cases with severe backward steps. But there clearly was a sense of listening and being prepared to experiment, to try things and see if they work. And if they didn't work, admit that they didn't work and then try something else, but at least respond to clear, politically, in some cases quite extreme, expressions of, of, of need and fear. I think we do have some crises of legitimacy. I do think that, and I don't want to get into partisan politics here, but I do think that there has been a, a major push towards um, better to let nothing be done than to let the other side get what it wants, whether it's a Supreme Court appointment. The, I, and I will say this. Um, I think the whole response to Obama's election, which began with the then majority leader of the United States, minority leader of the United States Senate, saying that his only job was to prevent him from having a second term and the rise of the birther movement, that it was fundamentally illegitimate for someone who looked like that to be president of the United States. We have been paying for that. We are still paying for that. Digging ourselves out of that hole, we have a long way to go. And clearly, that hole has gotten a lot deeper in the last 10 years than it was in January 2009. The manner in which the court, the Supreme Court, since the Bush v. Gore election of 2000, has not entirely, but to a substantial extent, become, again, as it has been in the past, defined by alignment with political parties. And this is not the first time this has happened by any means. So there's a challenge there, which I think the Chief Justice is quite explicit about recognizing, working to maintain what legitimacy the court still has, 
So I think these, these, these issues of the legitimacy of our political institutions, but also the legitimacy of, of, of private institutions. This is what happens when you reach this co- kind of stressful state in this coexistence, which, as Bill Gurley says, may be doomed to fail. I wouldn't give up on it. I don't give up on it. I sure as hell worried about it. <laughs> so it, it's, it's um, no simple. It, these institutions have evolved over very extended periods of time. There is no steady state. I like to, I like to point this out, coming back to my metaphor of the three-player game. When I thought of it, when I came up with that as a kind of framework for, for working through what I learned as a venture capitalist, what I learned as a political economist, I thought of it in, 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 as, as resonating with what the physicists call the three-body problem. In the simple Newtonian mechanics, where you have three bodies interacting through their gravitational pull relative to their masses and their distances, there's no stable equilibrium. No stable equilibrium. Wherever you are, you're in process of getting somewhere else. And that's very much true of of how I conceive of the history of the three-player game in action. Going back to some of the the problems you mentioned, Peter Thiel and and others, Todd Cowan and others, have spoken about the importance of, the central importance of economic growth as sort of indirectly addressing some of of these problems where when you don't have economic, or the lack of economic growth causing some of them, when you don't have when the pie is smaller, people are you know fighting increasingly over smaller pie, and when there's bigger pie, there's 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 more to go around, and it's a more stable uh, situation. I'm, I'm curious how you think about uh, economic growth in, in that capacity, and then uh, separately, I'm curious how you, you when you think about climate change, to the extent that we are dependent on economic growth, I'm curious how you think about the sustainability uh, 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 of that. Excellent, excellent point. Now, it's clear that we can, that, that there's no one deterministic path of economic growth. I'll just give you an example. From the impact of the first oil crisis in 1973, through the Carter administration's introduction of fuel standards for automobiles, it took a couple of decades, but economic growth and economic activity and the growth of economic activity in the United States became very substantially less energy intensive. That was the combined function of markets and government. Markets, market signals. Price of energy is higher, use less of it. That's economics 101. And that is good free market, pure market economics. But it also gets accelerated if you, the automobile companies, have to go from selling cars to get 12 miles a gallon to selling cars to get 20 miles a gallon. So you have this very useful. Again, it's a public-private partnership. It's using markets, markets responding to signals, and those signals being reinforced. That's, by the way, why almost any economist you scratch would say the simplest, most direct intervention we can make that will have the least corrupting, the least distorting effect would be a carbon tax. Now, you're not going to convince the surviving Koch brother of that, but... (laughs) That is goes exactly with what OPEC imposed a carbon tax on the world when oil prices went up by a factor of four in a week, in a month. Okay, so that 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 that's one part of it. 
So I do agree, as I say, with Carlotta Perez, that we can fashion a path, partly with market signals, partly with regulatory interventions, that make both for a much cleaner growth path going forward, a much more sustainable one, while retrofitting the economy so that the level, as distinct from the growth, the level of, econ- of, of energy production and consumption in the economy and, for that matter, other scarce resources is reduced. I think that is available. It is not anything on the, I mean, sure, it's sort of on the agenda in the U.S. for discussion. We'll see what happens in the 2020 election as to whether it actually gets on the political agenda. I am encouraged. You know, this is where the bad news is the good news. There was just this poll that shows that Americans, a five times the proportion of Americans who deny any climate change, it's weird. It's five times higher than in the average of the developed nations of the OECD. But those who deny are only 15% of the population now. That's way down. Those who say this is a real issue is way up. This could actually play a very significant role in the 2020 election as to those who are prepared, those politicians who are prepared to speak to that responsibly and those who will try to evade or deny it on the other hand. That's very encouraging because that is a absolute prerequisite for shifting the center of gravity of growth. Now, there's no question that growing the pie, there's no question that growing the pie makes it easier to adjust the sharing of the pie. But let's remember that from roughly 1980, beginning in the stagflationary 1970s, the proportion of growth claimed by the top 10%, the top 1%, the top 0.1%, the top 0.001% has grown enormously. You don't just go by, by one tax cut from the top 1% going from less than 12% of national income to more than 20% or, or the top 10%. That take, that happens over time. And that was the pattern that the unequal distribution of the growth dividend over the last generation has been extreme. I find it hard to believe that we'll reach any sort of political equilibrium here without, in addition to greening growth, some significant movement towards redistribution of one sort or another. It doesn't have to come through taxes. It can come through benefits. It can come through Social Security, extension of Medicare, Medicaid. It can come in a variety of ways. I was struck in some numbers I was looking at very recently where the share of income of the top 10% in the United States, pre-tax and post-tax, is almost identical. In other words, the tax system does very, very little redistribution from the incomes generated in the market. That's not true of any other developed country, not just Sweden and, and, and such, but Germany, the rest of the, Japan, the rest of the developed world is a much more substantial redistribution often with the benefits delivered as services, not as cash, so that the after-tax, after-benefit, social benefit distribution 
distribution is much less unequal than the original market distribution. You've talked about Germany as sort of a, I don't want to say necessarily a hybrid model, but a, maybe alternative model between you know, China and, and the U.S. Maybe talk more about the differences between the Germany model and, and the U.S. model. Sure. Well, let's be clear. The German model, the post-war German model, emerged from the worst 30 years of any developed country ever. It um, probably as extreme as what Germany, what is now Germany, suffered during the 30-year wars of religion of the 17th century. The, the core doctrine is usually referred to as ordo-liberalismus, that is, of a liberal order, but with rules, rules. And it reflects a broad consensus that the exercise of executive authority in Germany from the onset of the First World War through the Weimar years and then the Third Reich and World War II was so extreme. And the hyperinflation of the early 20s is rolled into that because it was the executive leadership which printed the money, which exploded into hyperinflation, which liquidated the savings of the middle classes. So it wasn't just labor that lost its jobs. The middle class lost both its jobs and its savings. And that was the most profoundly destabilizing opening up to the extremism of the Nazis. So the post-war settlement involves very severe restrictions on the independent autonomy of the executive, particularly the ability to borrow and spend money. The trade-off for that is a much richer set of support, buttresses, and underwriting of the market, the social market economy. Without anything like the Obama stimulus bill that was passed through Congress in the winter of 08-09, Germany ran a very substantial deficit, but but that was because automatic stabilizers kicked in to provide funding from the state for keeping people on the payroll, not forcing them to be laid off, uh, for uh, unemployment, very high quality unemployment insurance for those who were, were laid off. So the, the market system, the market was more robust. The market institutions were more robust because there was a broader those market institutions. Now, there has been much criticism, some of which is, um, I think, mistaken, of Germany's refusal to in, empower the central government to borrow and spend money to accelerate the recovery from the Great Recession. In fact, Germany's growth since 2009 has been very dependent on very high export surpluses, which have indeed pulled liquidity out of its partners in the European Union and put stress on them, particularly in Southern Europe. It is interesting, however, that just in the last month or so, coming from very unusual places, reconsideration, the urge to reconsider this deeply felt, this deeply embedded resistance to financial autonomy for the executive leadership, political leadership, is is coming under question. So Christine Lagarde, who was head of the IMF and is the new, to be the new governor of the European Central Bank, has explicitly said that Berlin should reconsider its refusal 
to allow, uh, even though it could clearly do so, deficit spending to support economic growth. And there is even some, and, and, and the current governor, uh, Mario Draghi, said exactly the same thing. Because of the consequences of the central banks being the only game in town, as Mohammed El Aryan put it in a book a few years ago, in other words, the only public sector institutions empowered to support economic activity and the private sector through very, very, very low, unprecedentedly low, even negative interest rates, the spillover into the financial markets and from the financial markets into the real economy is increasingly distorting patterns of investment. Interest rates, in other words, the traders, interest rates could renormalize if government fiscal policy were to take on more of the burden of supporting economic growth. Now, that in turn would have the consequence, no doubt, of having a negative impact on the valuation of financial assets, which in non-bubble times and even in bubble times is typically a direct factor, a function of the level at which you discount future cash flows. So if interest rates go up and particularly speculative long-term forward future cash flows are discounted at a higher rate, well, that will have quite an impact on the, on the unicorns in particular, but on the financial markets in general. So there's a trade here, but it's very much open for debate. Uh, and the German, uh, the German model has served Germany well. It has served Germany well over the two post-war generations. But it is now coming into some internal, quest- uh, uh, internal questioning that may, we may see a shift, not undermining, not reducing substantially the underwriting of the social market economy, although that was reduced in the previous government, the labor market. Uh, was substantially, was well, somewhat deregulated. But if Germany does move towards fiscal stimulus, it will allow the central banks to reduce their extreme uh, low interest rates and then with consequences for the financial markets. That's speculative on my, my part. I mean, whether or not that will actually happen. Yeah. And what's your speculation on, on U.S. monetary policy going forward? Normatively, and and like, what should we do, and what do you think will happen? Well, you know, obviously, well, not obviously. It is a fact that no head of the Federal Reserve has ever been under the sort of pressure that Jay Powell has been put under by the president, uh, and he's clearly faces a real dilemma of trying to do what's right, and also in, in terms of policy, while also doing what's right institutionally and maintaining the independence of the Fed. Uh, it would be an utter irony if it were a Republican administration that reduced the legitimacy and authority of the institution that is supposed to stand apart from the economic and the pressures of economic interest and do what's right for the economy as a whole. That would not be a good thing. Uh, I think the um, the broad consensus. Uh, amongst, this is not a partisan issue, the broad consensus amongst Republicans and Democrats is that it would be a very bad thing for the president 
to be able unilaterally to set monetary policy. Uh, this, with certain elements, may be the breaking point where even the uh, gift of the last tax cut uh, doesn't offset the concern about this attempted extension of presidential power beyond legitimate limits. You know, I, uh, we have uh, six minutes left, so I want to sort of, you know, put three uh, three topics by you, and you could take on whichever ones uh, are most interesting or, or have time for. Getting back to what we were talking about earlier uh, with the the tech lash, I'm curious when do you think it will end, and wh- what will ca- cause that uh, to end? As we were talking about, that's one. Two, we're talking about climate change. I'm curious what you want Silicon Valley to understand, you know, particularly as it relates to you know the clean energy bust that happened uh, in in the 2000s, um, and and what Silicon Valley's role role to play there. And I know you've also talked about the increase of public spending. And then three, uh, as we talked about the unicorn phenom, um, you know, price insensitivity and excess capital are usually coupled. Today they seem decoupled. Do you do you agree with that? And if so, you know, is there precedent for that, or has that happened before? Well, I say there's a precedent for every kind of bubble that's ever happened in 200 years of modern post-industrial capitalism. I don't think I have to spend much time on that one. And you're absolutely right. The uh, attempt at promoting a clean, green bubble in the 2000s collapsed because it had no public underwriting. There was no clear sense, whether through regulation and taxes or, or through spending, that there was going to be broad momentum and the scale of investing. And this gets back uh, to what we were talking about before. The scale of investment is just beyond the scope of venture capital. You're talking about a a unit being a billion dollars. Now, that may seem like nothing when you're funding WeWork, but when you're trying to build out alternative, well, even um, alternative automobile companies, it clearly takes enormous amounts of capital over sustained periods of time. But the first one, the tech lash, let's spend just a couple of minutes on that. You know, I've written and I've talked about how those who are inventing the new world, who know that they're creating that which has never existed before, tend to feel, tend to feel that spending any time understanding how the world that they are disrupting came to be and how it works is a waste of time because they're going to destroy it. Well, of course, worlds have a way of biting back. They don't go willingly. So understanding, for example, that there's no history of transportation services being delivered in the private sector without some sort of constraint on supply, whether it's taxi medallions or FAA licenses, uh, because the economics the network economics, where the marginal cost is a, a, approaches zero, but average cost is greater than zero, means that under competitive conditions, price will move towards average co- towards marginal cost, and everybody will lose money. That's a dynamic that can be observed back in the world of the railroads, in the world of the competing electricity companies, and certainly in the world of digital services. So. I would urge, and there are some indeed in Silicon Valley, uh, to listen to my great friend and perhaps the ultimate digital guru, Tim O'Reilly, in getting themselves educated 
historically and politically about this intersection of markets and governments and about how those who are the incumbents in the markets that are subject to disruption do have political power and will use it. The hotel companies, of course, will use their political muscle to resist Airbnb, just as the taxi companies will use it to resist Uber. That's not illegitimate. That's just capitalism at work. So getting over the sense that they're being treated unfairly, participating in the process, working towards forms of collaborative public regulation of private sector activities. And of course, this now particularly comes to a head with the new California law about gig working and about who's an employee. This, I think, is an imperative for the Silicon Valley techno, not, you know, it's not a matter of visionaries, it's a matter of pragmatic entrepreneurial success will turn on taking seriously the political, social, cultural, as well as regulatory environment in which they're proposing to operate. That is a uh, that is a perfect place and perfect time to close. Uh, my guest today has been Bill Janeway. The book is Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy. Read it. Uh, and uh, Bill, thank you so much for, for your work. Is there anything else you'd like to, uh, like to plug? I'd like to plug your uh, extraordinary qualities as an interviewer and an interlocutor, Eric. I enjoyed this hugely. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 